0: What would life look like if our good intentions were inspired enough, empowered enough, and challenged enough so that all those dreams became real, tangible, good in the world? On Practice Good Podcast, you will find authentic stories, challenging conversations, and real responses that will inspire, empower, and challenge your social impact journey. But this isn't all good business and good programs and good social enterprise are only as good as the health of their leader and on this podcast we will pay special attention not only to the good that we give to the world but to the good that we live within ourselves our soul care welcome to practice good a podcast for change makers I'm your host Shiloh Kashima practitioner of good pastor and mom of two spicy Nigerian littles get ready as we turn your good and intentions into positive change. Hey, 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 practice good. It is Shiloh here, and I am so incredibly excited to be back with you today. Last week was awesome. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it inspired you in 2021 to get out there and create some incredible goals and take your year by storm. This is not the year to be waiting around and reacting. I know if you're anything like me, That was what the whole theme of 2020 was about, waiting to see what was going to happen to us. And in 2021, we're not doing it. No, we're not. We are going out there and creating change. And that is why I am so excited to talk to you guys today about how to respond when angry. Now, before you get angry at me for even bringing it up, let's just start with my own experience. So... I have been in anger for probably four years now. I've literally watched it build. I have seen it eat me alive and I've seen it literally paralyze me to where I was unfunctional and really not helpful to anyone. And in the midst of that, I have spent many times responding to people, whether in person or on social media, in ways that were very reactive and not necessarily helpful for the situation at all. So today is about real talk. It is about authenticity. It is about how do we live in the midst of these times, in the culture that we're in, with the situations we're in, and how do we take our advocacy, our platform, our leadership, and how do we still lead with love? Now, I know A lot of us out there are trying to make the world a better place. We are advocating for a better world, for equity and equality, for uh, people to stand up for the image of God in all people, diversity and inclusion. And I could not live for any better cause. All people were created by God and with his beauty in mind. And so I advocate for that. I stand for that. And I will always stand for that. But these times make it really difficult to know what to do and how to talk and how to communicate. You don't want to not say anything and be silent. You don't want to say something and hurt someone because you didn't know how to respond. You don't want to say too much and also hurt someone or offend someone. And then you don't want to get stuck and tongue tied and not really know what you're trying to say. You don't want to come off abrasive. You don't want your anger to spill out everywhere and then ruin a relationship. There are so many landmines right now. And so I wanted to just have a real conversation with you about what it looks like as advocates, change leaders, and dreamers of a better world to respond, whether in person, on social media, to people that don't necessarily have the same ideals, values, and morals you do. So let's really get started. Like I told you, my story is one about anger, where anger not only became my friend, but it began to swallow me alive. I got to this place where all I wanted to do was move to an island and eat coconuts and mangoes for the rest of my life. Protect me, myself, and I, and my family, of course. But this is the problem. And as many of you know, in studying sub-Saharan Africa and all the post-war reconciliation efforts that were incredibly done there, we have seen patterns, patterns of genocide, patterns of things where people can look back and see when civil wars, civil battles, and genocides are on their way. And so many things we're seeing today. And in that, we've learned. We've learned how to do things differently. What not to repeat. And one of the things that we've learned is about the definition of we. You guys have heard me talk about this before. The definition of we is whoever you include in your circle. And they have done studies that show that countries and territories in which the definition of we is more expansive, those places are less likely to have genocides and civil battles the places where we is more tightly defined, like me, myself, my two kids, and my husband, those are the places where civil battle, civil war, genocide can break out more easily. They found a high and strong positive correlation between these two things. So what does it mean to define we, right? When I talk about we, I talk about my family, but predominantly and the way that I have lived my life is to define we as the world, as humanity. We have obligations. We have responsibilities to stand up for all people. We as humans have a connection and a hole and a void that we're trying to fill. We stand in solidarity with one another. This is the biggest and best kind of definitive idea of we. When more people have this idea and definition of we, it is less likely that genocides and civil wars and battles will break out. However, the more tension arises, the more anger, the more hatred in a land and the more lies and the more that fear is used as a tool to weaponize against people groups, the smaller the definition of we becomes. And we found this in places like Rwanda, Sierra Leone, Cambodia, even Germany, right? And we're finding this also in America now. Now, think to yourself, in the past four years, how has my definition of we changed? Was it large at first? Was it all of humanity? Was it expansive and inclusive of all Colors, backgrounds, languages, races, religions, socioeconomic statuses, and sexual orientations. And now, where is it? Who's your definition of we? Are you nervous when you go outside, when you walk across the crosswalk, or down to the mall, if you're going there at all? I know for me, I got to a place where I became very scared. I walked my children across the street one day through a crosswalk, and I saw a car coming. And naturally, without even cognitively thinking about it or knowing I was thinking about it, I became afraid. Is this car going to slow down or speed up? My children are biracial. And there was a fear inside of me that there are people in the world and in America who don't like them. And because of that, I had this insatiable fear inside of me that my world was no longer safe or had it ever been. And my definition of we became smaller. People that I loved, people that were in my wedding, people that I thought had loved me and my family, I became very cynical towards. I cut people out. I allowed fear to not only come in for a moment or a season, but to make its home inside of me. And eventually it diminished my definition of we down to just me, my kids, and my husband. And when that happened, I realized that something was severely wrong, that the purpose and place of anger was to create positive change, not to linger and stay so long that it paralyzed me, that it burnt me out, that it caused me to bring resistance to every conversation, every new relationship, every opportunity. I remember... A while ago, we had a visitor in our church, and it was a gentleman that walked in, a white gentleman with a cowboy hat. And in my church, where we are very diverse, I know on a couple of hands all of the white people that are there. And knowing their stories, I know that every single one are intentionally there for a purpose. There is a reason that they feel called there. Usually a white person or white family does not come into our church and simply stay because they like it. I've been here for almost eight years, and I am very well aware that a church with a black pastor and a diverse congregation and staff are often going to be filled with diverse congregations. It's very rare that you see a church under a black pastor that is also filled with many white people. And I'm still trying to come to the bottom of why that is, but it simply is. And I remember this one day, this gentleman came in, he was a little bit late for church and he sat right in the middle. And my immediate thought was, does he have a gun? And I was afraid the whole time. I kept having anxiety. I was thinking, is my husband okay? Is he safe? Now, granted, we do have a historical experience where a white man did come in and throw over some chairs. And then he showed up a couple years later and began to rant and rave and yell around the church. So I do have some history and experience and trauma around this. But also with the way that our culture is right now, With the way our society in America is, with the way our politics are landing and the way our systems of injustice are holding up, I was afraid. I thought, why would this man be here? And so the entire time I had trouble focusing. I had trouble thinking of anything other than, are we safe? Are we safe? Are we safe? Is my husband safe on stage? And eventually I calmed down and service ended and we were doing our thing and going about saying hello to people. And my husband walked up to me after and he was shaking and he said, babe, I, could you tell that I was nervous? And I said, no, actually, what, are you okay? And he goes, well, I just, that man walked in and all I could think the whole time was, does he have a gun? Does he have a gun? Does he have a gun? And my heart began to drop and I was like, oh my gosh, I wasn't the only person thinking this. But I didn't think much else about it. And later, my worship pastor came up to me and said, oh, my gosh, I felt like I did a horrible job today. And I said, "Why? Wow, you did great. And she said, I just kept thinking, what if that guy has a gun? What if that guy has a gun? And all of a sudden, I realized something that was happening. This is what we do to black men. When black men or young boys with a hoodie or however, you know, whatever thing we want to say that makes us grab our purse or stand a little on the side or keep an eye out for someone else, this is what we do. And I was doing the very same thing that I'm sitting here fighting against and standing up against to someone else. And whether it was true or not, this is the reason why we're having a problem in our society. I had this fear and the fear changed how I showed up in the space of my leadership. Same with my husband and our worship pastor. We are taking and we took subconsciously the same tools we've been fighting against and we use them as protection for ourselves. And ultimately, they hurt us in the end. Howard Thurman, he said, hatred is as dangerous to the hated as it is to the hater. And it is so true. If we are standing up for the marginalized, if we are being allies to those that people are not listening to, if we are being a voice for the refugee and those in camps and those who are marginalized we also have to understand that the tools that we use to stand up for people have to be tools of the new kingdom, right? They have to be tools of love and goodness and generosity and kindness and abundance. They can't eventually lead us into the very same tools we're fighting against. Because in those moments, I realized I, my implicit bias was giving into even bigger things like prejudice and fear. And those are the things that slow us down. Those are the things that divide us. Those are the things that cause us to look out for me, myself, and I, and my family, and my definition of we gets smaller. My husband was put on a texting group for a prayer ministry. And this group um, predominantly has very different views than we do politically. But my husband likes to, you know, hear what is going on in the community And one day, one of them said, hey, we are going to be praying for the president. We're going to pray for the president. And they wrote a very long text about how we must pray for our leaders. And that is what God called us to do biblically. My husband, also being a pastor, wanted to see where the group was at in terms of praying for the next leader as well. And he just wrote back and said, yay, great, we will definitely be praying and continue to pray for this president. Could we also pray for whoever the next president is? When the time comes, should we also not biblically, you know, be praying for who comes into office next, whether we agree with people or not? If we are called to pray for people we disagree with in political power right now, then are we also not called to pray for those of... If you disagree with the next president, are we also not called to pray for him? To which this person's response was kind of a violent text. It really belittled my husband. It said, no way, we will never pray for the next president and went off on all the reasons why. And my husband read this to me and we just kept thinking, this is the problem with where we're at as Christians. Because we live double standards. Not only do we live double standards by how we choose to submit to authority, we also live double standards because of how we choose to treat people. This other person in the community, a leader of a ministry, chose to belittle, shut down, and tear my husband apart on text message and also rants and rave about how Christians are not to pray for. The next leadership. And my heart began to be broken because this is where we're at. And this is what people see as Christians. This is what people believe is Christians. And I know for myself and for my husband and for my church, we are so different than that. We believe that God has called us all. God speaks to us all. God created us all. And therefore, we stand with all. We stand with refugees. We stand with immigrants. We stand with people that are seeking refuge across the border. We stand for children in foster homes. We stand for those with accents and language barriers. We stand for even our LGBTQ brothers and sisters because all people deserve equality. Whether we agree or not, all people are loved by God. So I want to offer an alternative today. When we have these moments where we're holding all this anger, this hurt, this trauma, this bitterness, and often resentment inside, what can we do differently right now? It feels like the world, and especially America, is out of control. How do we withstand this? I'm going to share with you guys a little story, and maybe this can be a beautiful example of what we too can practice. Many years ago, I went to the country of Rwanda. I traveled with a group called World Vision as an assistant to the director of the tour. The tour was taking child sponsors to meet their children and also to tour around and see some of the beautiful developments they had created through microfinance. I was very excited to go. And when we got there, we met our hospitality director. I'm going to give her the name Lisa. Lisa was in a hotel and, well, we were in a hotel. And I remember one day we were supposed to meet her downstairs to go on a tour of Hotel Rwanda. Do you guys remember that movie, Hotel Rwanda? If you haven't seen it, definitely watch it. And so we were coming downstairs to meet her and I was the first one there. So I began to just ask her questions and get to know her. How did you get this job? How did you hear about this? What do you love? What do you know about World Vision? All these things. And she began to share her story. Years ago, During the Rwandan genocide, she was pregnant and her neighbor, believing the lies that the government and the militia armies had spread around between the Hutus and the Tutsis, her neighbor came and with a machete killed her husband in front of her. She ran for her life as a pregnant woman and lived in the bush or the jungle, as we would call it here in America. She gave birth to her baby in the jungle, and she seriously remembers. She's like, Shiloh, there was an angel because when I birthed that baby, I was alone for a very long time. And all of a sudden, someone showed up, cut the umbilical cord, tied it, and then left me with a baby. I never saw them again. This woman had actually, when she was in one of the hotels that she was at, she hid under the bed as a pregnant woman while the slaughters were happening. Years later, the genocide ended and post-war reconciliation efforts were underway. And of course, the government and the policing department found the neighbor and put him in custody. And what do you do when half of your country is guilty of murder? There's no way to lock everyone up. So what Rwanda did was put people in jail, but they gave them different incentives for being a part of a transitional justice program. So you would drive around Rwanda and literally see these wooden benches out in the red dirt with people sitting around and these ad hoc court cases going on all around you. You would see bright pink jumpsuits where people who had been guilty of murder or crimes during the genocide would sit and be tried, not by anyone, but by the very people and the very families that they had hurt. And what would happen would be the person who was convicted and guilty would have to sit as the family and those who were perpetrated could express their hurt, their trauma, and share their stories for as long as they wanted. Sometimes it could last hours, sometimes months and years. And the criminal would have to, or the incarcerated person would have to listen to all of their trauma. Be authentic and vulnerable and apologize in humility. And if the family felt like this person was genuine, they could offer forgiveness. And at that point, the criminal sentence would be cut in half and they would be allowed to work in the fields and learn agriculture in order to sustain themselves once they got out of prison. This was the post-war reconciliation efforts in Rwanda with the Truth and Justice Commission. And this was beautiful. This woman, Lisa, told me all about how she went through this entire process. And when her husband's murder was released, she built a house for him next door to her. And then she paid for him to go to trade school. I literally looked at her in that hotel room and I said, how do you do that? How do you sleep at night knowing this man who murdered your husband was, is right next door to you? He could come in at any moment. He could hurt you. How do you trust him? How do you live like that? And I will never forget what she said to me. She looked at me and she said, Shiloh, we have no other choice. It is forgiveness or death. Forgiveness is our only way of living. And I said, but yeah, you don't have to pay for him to go to trade school or build a house next to you. I can understand, like, you know, forgiving him, but then, you know, setting up healthy boundaries. And she said to me, Shiloh, this man was a victim just as much as we were. He was preyed upon by lies and fear. They took fear and they told him that if he didn't attack, us, we would attack him first. He was brainwashed and delusional. He had no money and he, he gave in to the promises they gave him of comfort and protection and food and money and he believed it. He is a victim too. And I literally sat there and I had never heard of this kind of forgiveness. This is the alternative, the only alternative I can think of for America right now. The only thing shocking in this world at this point is love and forgiveness. That is the only thing that will withstand this. Our anger is good for positive change, but anger that we begin to live with and allow live in us will paralyze us and cause us to resist everyone and everything until we resist ourselves. We cannot live like this anymore. If you are like me, And you have become angry at Christians. You've become hurt by the church. You have had church wounds and so many kinds of wounds. I want to offer you this perspective. One of my mentors, he was an outreach pastor at a very large church. He would do street ministry and love people back to life. And then when these people would start coming to church, they would come into a very large church, 6,000 people, and they wouldn't know kind of the unspoken protocol to take off your hat or, you know, button up your shirt or, you know, look the little bit, a little bit better so you could come in presentable. And you could literally see all the people he had loved on in the streets coming in and the ushers at the door looking at them like, I don't want to shake their hand. They're a little dirty. Not offering them the front row seat because, oh, that might look bad on camera. Asking them to take off their hat when the reality is just the fact that they're in these doors is so beautiful. And he began to get angry. He was angry at the church. He was angry at Christians. He was angry at every single person in the pews. And then his mentor said to him, why are you so angry? And he said, because if people really acted like Jesus, if they really knew the love of Jesus, they would treat these people with dignity and respect and love. And the mentor said, by your very definition, you are saying that the people in these pews, the people in your churches, the ushers at your door do not really know Jesus. And if that is the case, then can you not find the compassion that you have for everybody on the streets and find that same compassion for the people in the pews? And he said, that was the first time where all my resentment, all my resistance went away. And I want to challenge you. I am not talking right now to anybody who has no problems with anger. I am not talking to you if you don't feel any trauma. I am not talking to you if you feel colorblind. I am not talking to you if you feel like there's no discrimination. Today, I'm talking to all of us who have stood in the gap, who've stood as allies, who have said that we stand in solidarity with everyone because we are all the image of God. And we have found ourselves in places and spaces that are so dark and so angry that sometimes we don't know if we can get out. Today, my husband read this really great scripture from the Bible at church. It's Colossians 4, 5 through 6. It says, be wise in the ways you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. I just want to take that first verse, be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. That same story that I told you of my mentor and his mentor, let's consider all of those we're angry at, the church that we want to disconnect so far from, and let's consider them outsiders, that they too have not discovered a piece of Jesus that is so beautiful and so real and so full and so life-giving and so inclusive right? And then the second piece of that verse, let your conversations always be full of grace, seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. And I hear that over and over in my head because all of a sudden I get this image of a plate full of salt My three-year-old son loves to pour spices on everything, but he will pour an entire plate of salt and then he'll lick it and he will be disgusted because salt is not good in big portions. Have you ever heard people say, you know, when you're making your coffee and they put a ton of cream in and they say, you want some coffee with that creamer? That's exactly this. Do you want some grace with that salt? That is how we're coming across. And we cannot enroll people in a new world if we're heaping salt on their wounds, because we all know what salt feels like on wounds, right? You get a cut in your mouth. Your mom says, wash it out with salt water, and it burns because salt hurts in large quantities. The Bible says we're called to heap grace and grace and grace and grace and grace like mounds of mashed potatoes and then season with salt, not the other way around. Life is an enrollment game. Every single opportunity we have with someone is either about us enrolling them in a bigger and better vision of this world or them enrolling us in theirs. And theirs might not be a bigger, better version. There's could be a good or a bad attitude that day. It could be something negative. And the reality is if someone comes to you with hate, if someone comes to you with bigotry, if someone comes to you with ignorance and you allow that to enroll you in their spirit, that spirit has won. We are no better off if you or I or anyone else who's filled with love and equity and inclusion and kindness and grace and mercy, we are no better off if we show up to someone who has a different energy than us and we bow out and start going from 100% to 20%, Right? to 80% to 60% and all of a sudden I'm not showing up in my grace, love, and power. There is no good I can do this world if I allow the energy of this world to become my energy. I think that's why the Bible says in Colossians 3 to think on these things, things that are good and pure and true and lovely. So I want to encourage you guys today and I'm talking to all of the Christians who are angry, all of the Christians who are hurt, All of the Christians who are tired of Christians and hanging on to Jesus. Keep your eyes on the things that are good and pure and kind and loving. Because if you don't, the energy of this world will fill you and you will be using the same tools that they use. Hatred is just as dangerous to the hater as it is the hated let us respond in love even while angry let us use the tools of the new kingdom this is the only way we will sustain ourselves in the long run we if we do not want to burn out if we do not want to go under if we do not want to fly to timbuktu and never be seen again if we do not want our definition of we to get smaller we have to use tools of the new kingdom. So I want to invite you today to step into love in every single conversation. And I want to end with this. Four years ago, I found out that someone I dearly love, someone I'm very close to, did not vote. And I remember as soon as I found that out, I literally could not talk to the person. I was sunk into like this deep, hard, dark depression for about two weeks. I have never been this angry at this person in my life. I could not talk to this person. I couldn't figure out the words. I was tongue-tied. I was appalled. I could not understand why this person did not take their opportunity to vote to make the world a better place. I mean, I've lived in nations where people fight with their lives just to have an opportunity to vote, and this person did not use their opportunity and especially did not stand up for my husband and my children and take their vote to make sure that they would have equal opportunities. Finally, after about two weeks, I couldn't stand the resistance that I was bringing to the table anymore, and I began to ask questions. I went to this person and I said, Tell me why. Can you tell me why you didn't vote? Because here is why I'm hurting. And I shared with the person about, people fighting to get votes, people hurting in other countries to get votes. And if it's not respect for my family, it's at least respect for all those all over our world who would do anything to get a voice. And the person through tears said, Shiloh, I could not stand before God and say that I voted for either candidate. And I know it wasn't good, but I had no idea what to do. And the person cried. And all of a sudden, all of my anger dissipated. And I felt compassion and empathy. And I realized that person did the very best they knew how to do in that moment. And while I did not like it, and I did not like the outcome, it was her best. And I could love her where she was at. And quite possibly, she could love me where I was at. I spent two weeks in a breakdown of intimacy and relationship, and all of a sudden, it was healed. So this is my thought for us as changemakers, as advocates, as leaders who are dealing with trauma and hurt and pain and anger, that we would move intentionally, even with all of the wounds, into a space of freedom and love and openness because whoever comes to us, whether they have the worst intentions in the world or the best, we get to be fully and 100% walking in love and kindness and goodness because that is how it spreads. And if we embrace people with that mentality, we might possibly be able to enroll more people in our vision for the world, but we definitely can't do it When we're closing people out, when we're shutting people down, when we're yelling and screaming, when we're building up anger and resistance and walls, and ultimately we want to give up and burn out and move to an island. All right. I love you guys. I hope this has been helpful to you. My goal is that we intentionally walk out our soul care, even in our responses to people during difficult times. I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks so much for joining us today, guys. I know with Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, celebrating him and the work that he's done this week, this came at a perfect time. I hope that you found that this week served you and it helped you in your journey to create good within yourself and live good within the world. Please head over to iTunes, give us a review, five stars, and a little just message about what you love about this podcast. You can share this. That is really the most important thing you can do. Share it on your social media channel. Let people know what you love about this and why you love it. And don't forget to join our Facebook group. You can go to Practice Good or Practice Good with Shiloh. The Facebook group is super active. You're going to get a lot of really cool stuff and some incredible, incredible people who are like-minded are in that group. So can't wait to hear from you. If you would like to get a free gift from me, it's called the Ultimate Change Maker Resource List. Go to practicegoodwithshiloh.com. That's www.practicegoodwithshiloh.com. You can get that free gift right there, and I hope that serves you. It's got all my favorite resources when it comes to creating positive change, social enterprise, social entrepreneurship, nonprofit management, and any kind of leadership where you are bringing positive good into the world. So head over, get that, and I. I love you. Cannot wait to see you guys back next week. If you want to email me, if you have ideas for the podcast, you want to hear about a topic, I am accessible to you. Go to hello at practicegoodwithshiloh.com and I will talk to you soon.